This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. You are listening to On the Daily, the Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the March 1st, 2019 NASCAR edition of On the Daily. I'm Matt Friedman, Matt of the Oracle of the Action Network in Rotoviz. And of course, I'm joined by Dr. Nick Giffen, a PhD in mathematics, a three time qualifier for the DraftKings NASCAR main event, and one of the best NASCAR DFS players in the world. You can follow him on Twitter at Rotodoc. Nick, how's it going? Hey, Matt, I am doing fantastic and uh, pretty excited this weekend. The race is, of course, in Las Vegas, my hometown. Uh, we got we got a really awesome weekend this weekend in Vegas. Also, the Rugby Sevens are in town for uh, their U.S. tournament. So it's a bunch of rugby nations from around the world, and they compete in the Rugby Sevens tournaments, uh, which is like kind of like a long season of, of tournaments held throughout the world. And uh, so this weekend is the U.S. tournament, which is held in Las Vegas, and then uh, last night I went to the Golden Knights game as well. So very busy uh, time in Las Vegas, but uh, that's good. It makes it a lot of fun. Yeah, and uh, NASCAR, of course, is the dominant sport of all the sports that's happening this weekend uh, in Vegas. Absolutely. Oh, man, the uh, the first race. Uh, let's talk about last week's race, uh, Lana Motor Speedway race. Uh, so it was the first race under the new aerodynamic package. Um, Brad Keselowski... Um, edged out a hard-charging Martin Truex Jr. for the win. The race featured six drivers uh, who led at least 22 laps, but the guy with arguably the best car, uh, which was Truex, he led only four laps. What do you make of last weekend's race at Atlanta, and uh, what are your general thoughts on the aerodynamic package after just one race? Yeah, I thought it was a – I actually thought it was an entertaining race – uh, at the front of the field and there was lots of drama there was um you know some untimely cautions there was pit strategy with tires which definitely made a difference um and the cool thing is i the, the biggest takeaway for me from this new aerodynamic package was you were able not only to catch the leader but you were able to pass him now it wasn't easy to pass him obviously because these drivers are all professional and uh you know, they do their best to keep other drivers behind them, but there definitely were on-track passes for the lead, which is what we want to see at this level of NASCAR. Nobody likes when you can catch the leader, but you can't pass the leader. We definitely saw a lot of passes for the lead. We saw some cool restarts. There were three, four wide on restarts. We saw Kurt Busch take Kevin Harvick, you know, his former teammate last year, uh, take him three wide on a restart, and uh, Harvick dropped some positions. You know, everybody at the beginning of the race thought Larson and Harvick had the dominant cars. Harvick turned out probably uh, middle midway through the race, kind of lost the handling on his car and didn't quite have as much of a dominant car as Kyle Larson. 
Larson led 142 laps, had 54 fastest laps, easily had the best car, but an untimely speeding penalty on pit road cost him there. So Larson uh, still ended up in the winning lineup. He started seventh, finished 12th, got a crap ton of dominator points, uh, which is, you know, a very specific number, mathematical number there, a crap ton. Uh, But uh, did not end up winning the race. That, of course, went to Brad Keselowski. Truex was closing on Brad Keselowski. I wasn't sure if he was going to pass him or not there on the last lap. Turns out he didn't, uh, which made for an unfortunate day for me, which I'm sure we'll talk about there a little bit. But uh, also made for an unfortunate day for for one of the longtime Road of His subscribers who uh, was tied for second going into the final lap. And uh, he just needed Martin Truex Jr. not to pass Keselowski, and he didn't. So... When he crossed the finish line, I thought he had second place locked up for like a five-figure profit. Unfortunately, Daniel Hemrick, uh, who he did not have in his lineup, made a pass of Austin Dillon and also grabbed the fastest lap on that final lap, which dropped him from second to a tie to 24th or 25th or 23rd or somewhere around there, uh, dropping him from a five-figure profit to only a $500 profit. So that was a big bummer, but it was good to see the road of his readers, uh, longtime readers in the mix early this season, uh, getting the handle on the new package. But I thought the race was great. Um, it definitely could get a little bit single file midway through the run, especially uh, in the field, further in the field. Uh, but up front, you're still able to race for the lead. And I thought there was a lot of exciting uh, battles for the lead throughout different points of the race. All right. You posted a few bets you made both before and during the race. And I should say the uh, the in-race wagering, uh, that's a lot of fun. That's something for us to kind of think about a little bit more. But uh, talk about those bets and uh, how you did. Yeah, I mean, you and I were, were texting back and forth a little bit during the race. Uh, you know, oh, man, Kurt Busch is at 20 to 1. Do we take him or do we wait or all sorts of, of kinds of things. So um, early on in the race, I saw Blaney was moving through the field. He started 26th. He had gotten up into uh, the top eight, basically all on speed, not on like pit strategy. And then he remained there um, through pit strategy and worked his way up to sixth and fifth. And I was like, still 26 to one on the betting odds. So I, I had to take him. Um, and at that point, when I saw him charging hard, uh, 26 to one, it just, it was out of line with what he was, how he was performing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, Similarly for Logano, he got boxed in twice on pit stops, which cost him positions on pit road. So his odds kind of sank. He started, I think he started the race around 12 to one. His odds kind of sank down to 19 to one because, you know, he got mired through the field, but he kept coming back through the field. So I saw speed there too. Both times he, he came back forward into the top 10. And uh, so when he dropped at 19, I took him. And then right as I took him at 19, you texted me that he was at 24. And so I refreshed the page, and sure enough, he was at 24. So I took him again at 24. Uh, and then uh, after that, uh, I, I took Truex at 13 to 1 at one point pre-race and uh, on at, at Bovada. And then, um, let's see, I took probably uh, Kyle Busch at nine to one when he dropped through the field and then he charged back and, and took the lead at one point. So, you know, all of the drivers, uh, actually Kyle Busch didn't take the lead, but it was very close to taking the lead at one point. So all the drivers I took ended up, uh, with shorter odds, you know, towards the end of the race than, uh, when I actually took them and all of them except, uh, Kyle Busch led. And even then Kyle Busch posted 25 fastest laps. So felt like my bets were good. It just didn't work out that Keselowski happened to be the one that won the race there at the end. And it was kind of lucky because the way the race played out, um, there was a caution in the middle of a pit stop cycle. And that caution was untimely for everybody except Joey Logano and Kurt Busch because everybody else had made the pit stops except Logano and Kurt Busch. 
So the whole field was one lap down except Logano and Kurt Busch. So they got to make their pit stops by themselves under caution. Then the whole field got the wave around, so they got to get back on the lead lap. All those drivers that were one lap down got to get back on the lead lap. But they're in the tail end of the lead lap with all the lapped cars between them and Logano and Kurt Busch. So there was like three rows of lapped cars. So it was Logano and Busch on the front row, three rows of lapped cars, and then it was Truex and Keselowski leading uh, the cars that weren't lapped. And so it took a little bit of time for Keselowski and, and especially Truex to make their way through the the lapped cars. Uh, eventually, Keselowski passes teammate Logano, who had a loose wheel. So that was unlucky there. Um, and then uh, Truex struggled getting by Ricky Stenhouse Jr. Truex started on the bottom, which normally was the place to be, but it was easier to pass on the outside on some of these restarts because um, if you're right behind the guy on the bottom, you have nowhere to go. You can't go to the top lane because there's cars there. And you can't go down on the apron because you'll wreck. So uh, Truex was just kind of stuck behind Stenhouse for a little while, whereas Keselowski was able to go around the outside of a few cars uh, that he was much faster than. So it just didn't work out. I still liked my bets. Truex still had the better car than Keselowski there at the end, but uh, that's how these things go. Unfortunately, I didn't hit Truex at 13 to 1. That would have been awesome to uh, to hit that. But also I took Alex Bowman minus 155 over Matt DiBenedetto. I thought it wasn't even close. Uh, I thought minus 155 was a really good price. I would have taken him probably down to minus 200 or something. But uh, took Bowman 155 over DiBenedetto, and Bowman finished like – three laps ahead of DiBenedetto, so I was pretty happy with that as well. So I'm going to derail the show a little bit, but I think it's worth having a longer conversation about strategy for uh, in-game, or I guess in-race wagering. Um, like, what do you think is the optimal strategy for, for thinking about this? Uh, do you think you kind of wait to see how cars are racing, uh, or do you think you kind of get a sense of the cars you're going to be targeting? Like you come up with sort of like a list of like, these are the 10 drivers I think have a very real chance of winning this race. And then you wait till uh, their odds improve uh, and then you get them uh, during the race. What do you think is the, the best way to do this? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a hybrid of, of both of those. I, I'm definitely looking at, you know, what drivers do I think just in general, there's probably maybe 16 drivers you could say have a chance to win the race if you just blindly, you know, said, I like Kevin Harvick or I like Brad Keselowski. Nobody's going to argue that. So you can basically whittle that down to about 16 drivers. And then from there, I think there's probably with specific tracks or track types, uh, things like that, you could probably whittle that 16 down to maybe 12 or 10 or something like that. And uh, but but part of it is you don't want to just be confined to those 10 or 12 drivers. If, if another car is really surprising you and looking really good, you might be able to catch on to that before uh, the online wagering updates catch on to that. So, for example, um, going into the weekend, I, I, I liked Blaney, but I didn't love him because he didn't have great high tire wear, uh, you know, stats. But uh, I, for DraftKings purposes, obviously, I liked him because he started 26th. Um, but once I saw him start moving through the field, I kind of adjusted. I was like, all right, he carved his way from 26 to eighth. Like that, that's pretty good. And it hasn't updated yet. So you're just kind of looking for that imbalance in things. Uh, uh, you're really looking to take advantage of situations. Um, you know, Joey Logano getting boxed in twice and being stuck in the teens, maybe, uh, um, for whatever reason, they, uh, 
you know, the, the people setting the odds or however it's done is is just an imbalance there because they see Lagana consistently running in the 10 to 15 range and like, well, his odds are probably not that good to win. But it was so early in the race. I mean, you think about a 325 lap race and these odds are uh, changing 80 laps in, 100 laps in. There's still, you know, 200, 300 miles to go uh, in this race. That's the whole Xfinity race, basically. Like that's that's still a long way to go. Uh, in terms of racing, there's still a lot of strategy. There's still probably at least one, if not two more stage breaks to come, uh, depending on the timing of, of when these things drop or not. So um, I think being attuned to the live betting very early in the race and trying to focus uh, on drivers that have either dropped not because of their own speed or who are carving their way through the field and haven't their odds, longer odds haven't updated yet. Are, are probably the two best kinds of targets to, to look at in, in race betting. Uh, and then, so for example, when Kyle Busch dropped through the field a little bit, he went to, I think it was nine to one um, because, you know, he had a, a pit stop problem that cost him seven spots. And so he restarted back in, in 12th or whatever. And, and, and so all, all these different kinds of things, you're just looking for value when it's something that is not really going to impact a driver's finishing position. If it happens so early in the race, yet it impacts their betting odds. That's where it's, it's kind of like DFS where you're like, oh, well, I actually have no idea how to predict the outcome of the race, but I know how to predict the market. This is a little more, this is kind of flipped. Like I can predict the, the race outcome better than the market is because the market's reacting to something you really shouldn't be reacting to. It's kind of like when a driver's starting 18th and then he goes to the rear of the field and I get 100 DFS questions asking Oh, does that affect his DFS? No, it doesn't at all. It's a 500-mile race. He'll be you know, fine, even though he's starting in the rear, that kind of thing. Um, the markets are overreacting to things that, that aren't actually impactful to a finishing position. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. That's really interesting. Uh, I think one of the the keys will kind of be learning a a couple of things. Like one, um, maybe actually three things. So one, the factors that uh, are significant versus the factors that aren't significant for in-race wagering in terms of like, as you've mentioned, like if a, if a guy drops back, does that have something to do with his car or does it have something to do with uh, something else that's happening? So being able to determine the factors in race that are significant uh, and those that aren't, but provide value because they are being, uh, the market is valuing them as if they uh, have significance. I think so that will be important. Just figuring the the factors that matter versus the factors that don't. Um, And then, uh, thinking about um, how far in the race you can go uh, while being able to exploit value. Um, like, so if something happens in the first third of the race where a guy drops back, there's probably enough time for uh, for you to be able to find value in betting on him. But like what happens if it's like in the last 
30 laps. Exactly. You know? and, and so like, yeah. So like being able to, to get that cutoff point of when it's smart to bet versus when it's not. Uh, yep. and, and then the third thing is, um, maybe coming up with like, and, and I'm sure you probably have this, this data and already like intuitively have a sense of this, but like knowing kind of the, like the range of variability within any given race. So like if a guy starts, let's just say like 15th, like, is it within a, just an average race? Is it totally normal for at some point you would expect him to be as far back as 25 or 30 and you would expect him at some point to be as far up as fifth or something like that. Like what is the general range in which you can just generally expect someone to vacillate uh, in, in driver position within any given race? And so if you know that a guy is still within his like normal range of vacillation, um, but he's on the like the lower end of it, you can exploit that um, by by betting on him when he provides more value, knowing that what is happening is totally within the realm of what you should expect to happen in a race. Absolutely. And and there is actually data, uh, loop data on a driver's highest position running during a race, his lowest position running during a race, his average running position during a race and his finish. So all of those things could um, you know, be really used to kind of determine the, I guess, the normal range of, of, like you said, vacillation. But, but that, even then, that might be a little extreme. Just saying, like the highest and the lowest, because if you know you pit on, if you're the first guy to pit under green flag, you could drop to last place. That doesn't right. really count. But what we really want to know is what is like a normal pit sequence vacillation for a driver, okay. like, yeah. uh, you know. But, but, but even then, you're absolutely right. It's like, oh, Joey Logano boxed in. That's just normal things that happen under, a, a, you know, a run. You can get boxed in on a pit stop and lose spots, or you can, uh, other people can have things happen, or you can make a good adjustment and carve through the field, and then make a bad adjustment in your next stint and drop back, and and things like that. But, uh, but what I really wanted to hit on was that timing issue because so much about betting is also about getting, getting the right timing uh, of your bet, not just not just in terms of the the value, but also, uh, like you said, of the number of laps left in the race, that kind of timing as well. Because Kyle Busch actually went to 13 to 1 at one point during the race, but it was at the very, you know, end, not not the end, but sort of near the end after he had a, a problem and dropped to the tail end of the, the lead lap. I saw that it was taking most drivers a, a, a good amount of time to carve their way through the field. Like, even at the beginning of the race, Kyle Busch started dead last because he went to that backup car. He made his way up to about 15th and kind of stalled out there. Um, so it's just it, it is hard to pass in these these tracks and these cars, uh, even though they're making it a bit better. Uh, you can stall out. So once Kyle Busch finally uh, went back to the rear, you know, I think it was like 17th or 18th last car in line there. Uh, and it was towards the end of the race, you know, maybe the last 50 laps or 80 laps or something. I can't remember when they cut off the betting. But at one point, he had dropped to 13 to 1. I was like, that's too late at this point because I, there's not enough randomness left in this race unless things were going to get crazy. And we hadn't really seen the race get crazy at that point. We'd seen no cautions, essentially, other than a caution on pit road um, to to warrant enough randomness towards the end there for me to feel confident in Kyle Busch at 13 to one. So absolutely the timing, the timing matters. Well, when he dropped a nine to one, there was still more than a full uh, pit stop left in the middle of the second stage. And there was still the stage end of stage two. And there was all of stage three to run, you know, when he dropped a nine to one. So uh, different timing there versus, you know, when he went to 13 to one with only 
60 or 80 laps left, there there doesn't seem to be as much randomness, and he was stuck way back there in 17th. All right. Uh, thank you for indulging those those, uh, those questions right there. I think it's, it's really fascinating because um, it's like a new – it's just a new component of, of NASCAR speculation, right? Yeah, uh, it, so, it certainly is. And then, yeah. you know, with Vegas this weekend, it's going to be another different kind of race than even Atlanta, which we'll talk about. So I'm, I don't have any instant reactions on like, oh, you should be uh, more aggressive on betting these longer odds or less aggressive when they change or, or things like that. I don't really have an intuition, but I kind of have a little bit of a gut feel based off of, you know, not opening practice, but just things people have been talking about and, and chatter you've been hearing. So we'll get into that, I'm sure. Yeah. So uh, earlier you talked about your reaction to the first race under the new aerodynamic package. Of course, Atlanta is a high t- a high tire wear track, uh, and the package also did not include the front air ducts, uh, which will be debuted this weekend in Las Vegas. So how much weight are you giving to Atlanta for evaluating fantasy nascar this weekend at las vegas um little i would say little uh the the high tire wear definitely still ate up the tires at atlanta um i know we were talking about you know one second drop off after 15 laps but after a 50 lap run uh they they were dropping off between two and three seconds even so it was was slower for the tire fall off but there still was fall off at atlanta Vegas this weekend, we're not going to be seeing much tire wear. I think you're going to see these guys go all the way to the end of the fuel run and uh, feel like they may not even need to be able to ch- may not even need to change tires, although they will, obviously, because if you're putting two tanks of fuel in the car, you have time to t- change the tires as well. But, um, you know, if there's a caution late in the race, you're not going to see drivers come in and pit. Uh, you're going to see them stay out because uh, the tire wear is going to be so much different. Um, so I think passing... I think track position will be important. Um, definitely with the way this new air package, aero package is set up, and obviously it's going to be different from Atlanta as well, I think you can pass throughout the field. Um, we did see passing throughout the field at Atlanta, although and eventually they got single file. So I still think restart's going to be very important. But I actually think we'll see more passing through the field at Vegas, but uh, it'll probably get harder and harder as you get towards the front. That's my best guess. But because the tires don't wear... I think track position is going to be very important. We, we talk about track position being important under the old, you know, low downforce, uh, takeaway, all as much downforce as you can. We talk about track position being important. Still think it's going to be important at uh, Las Vegas. I actually think it might be more important than Atlanta just because the tires aren't going to wear. So, um, you know, it's going to be I think it's going to be harder and harder. It, it'll be easier to get through the field, but it'll get harder and harder as you get towards the front of the field. Talk about the uh the air ducts what are they designed to do because that is the other big difference this weekend in addition to a surface that is less abrasive yeah so the air ducts are designed to redirect the air out the side of the cars uh and what that's going to do is it'll just create a bigger wake behind the cars so it'll create more of a drafting effect so you are going to hear a lot about drafting this weekend and uh so I mean, that's exactly what the air ducts are designed to do. We saw it actually a good race to watch back would be the all-star race last year uh, where they also had the air ducts and, and very similar rules to now. Uh, and you're able to watch drivers, you know, 
keep close contact to each other. Track position was still important, but you could definitely make passes. You know, we saw AJ Allmendinger, for example, charge through the field uh, because they must have hit the the new aero package setup. So um, those JTG Doherty cars look good at Atlanta as well. There, there, you know, there may be an early team to kind of jump on uh, under these new rules. But but the air ducts are designed to redirect the air outside the side of the car creating a bigger weight, creating a bigger draft, which in combination with the larger front splitter, the larger rear spoiler, and the lower horsepower, the tapered spacer, all of this is designed to, to create a draft and to create a little bit more uh, close quarters. So, um, you know, the air ducts are just another factor there. They weren't implemented in Atlanta, uh, I think partly because of the the tire wear issue, um, but uh, not, not completely so. Uh, you know, because we do, we will have no air ducts at a few other tracks as well. Pocono uh, comes to mind, and then we also have Darlington and Homestead. So it doesn't necessarily only have to do with tire wear. Uh, I'm not sure why NASCAR has chosen certain tracks over the others to to have air ducts or not. But in this case, at Las Vegas, it's all about creating a draft, and uh, we we saw that at the Charlotte race, and we saw that in the Las Vegas test that these cars definitely were able to uh, maintain a draft. Let's talk more specifically about Las Vegas, uh, a one and a half mile tri-oval with variable banking in the corners. As you mentioned, the aerodynamic package changes again this weekend with the front air ducts. Uh, there's also been one practice session already and qualifying will take place after we finish recording the show. What takeaways, if any, do you have from the early practice session and what are you going to be looking for from the rest of the practice sessions? Yeah, so... Uh, I, I just talked about it a little bit, but the draft absolutely played a role in practice. Um, but it was very interesting because we saw two different kinds of drivers end up at the top of the speed charts. And a lot of this opening practice was geared toward trying to figure out what the heck they're going to do and qualifying with these new rules and uh, being able to draft. But what we saw towards the end of opening practice was teams running together. You saw the three of the four Stuart Haas cars running together. You saw the three Penske cars running together. You saw the four uh, Joe Gibbs cars running together. And what we would see is the front car would be creating a draft for the other teammates behind them. And the back car would always be the one that ended up for the most part would always be the one that ended up the fastest. So uh, that is very similar to what we saw at Daytona where, you know, you're in a big pack. The last car is going to be the car that gets the fastest lap in that group. Uh, so when we're looking at fastest laps, they're going to be more spread out than normal probably uh, this weekend at Las Vegas. Uh, also, that'll really impact qualifying because now you play the game of, well, do I want to try to latch on to this other group's uh, you know, draft here and try to get a little toe? Because we did see some interlopers in these uh, team you know, runs here in final practice. We saw... Chase Elliott pick up a little toe uh, from, I think it was the Toyotas. We saw William Byron pick up a toe, I think, from the Fords. We saw Matt Benedetto pick up a toe from the Fords as well, from the Stuart Haas Fords. So um, it was very interesting to see some of these interlopers uh, actually put up really fast laps because they were, uh, you know, kind of barging in on another team's little mini uh, dr group drafting there. And uh, they ended up getting the fastest lap because they were able to suck up to a three or four car draft in front of them. So very interesting stuff. And that makes it exciting for the race because a, it'll spread out fastest laps. So I think that's going to be much more unpredictable. It'll be much more like Daytona as far as fastest laps goes, but B I think it makes it exciting because I do think that means we'll get to see some passing and some side-by-side -side racing. Uh, and it's also going to make qualifying just absolutely crazy, but 
the car that had the fastest lap in the opening practice session went by himself, Austin Dillon, all by himself, no draft, fastest lap of the practice session. So, uh, you know, if you have a fast car, you still have a fast car. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. You mentioned drafting played a big role in some of the top single lap times posted in the opening practice. Uh, the D word is most commonly used in NASCAR at restrictor plate races. Will you put any emphasis on this year's Daytona speed weeks when looking at drivers for this weekend? Um, you know, I'm going to say no, because <laughs> it, Daytona was a completely different rules package as well. Um, the restrictor plate is even more restrictive than the tapered spacer. Um, it was also done under the smaller spoiler, smaller splitter, et cetera. Uh, and, um, you know, now we've got completely changed scenario here. We're going to be going relative to the track size. These cars are going to be going faster through the corners. Uh, so if you look at Vegas last year, you know, these cars had to back off in the corners, but they're going to have more on throttle time in the corners because they're approaching the corners slower and they have more downforce. So they're going to be able to go faster through the turns. So that's going to change things relative to something like, you know, Daytona, where they're just flat out the whole time anyway, and it's really highly banked. Um, I'm I'm not going to be using Daytona in my evaluation. It's not like all of a sudden I think all the Fords are going to be the strongest cars like they were most of Speed Weeks uh, until, um, you know, and even in the Daytona 500, they looked for a good portion of the race the strongest until the very end there when the Toyotas were kind of snookered them on, on strategy there. But uh, – you know, I'm not really going to be using Daytona in evaluating drivers this week. And I just think there's there's too much difference um, from Daytona to Las Vegas, both in track size and, and also in rules package. Okay, so you won't give any evaluation weight to Daytona. Uh, what about uh, in terms of overall race predictions? Do you expect there will be any pack racing uh, with the draft prevalent at Las Vegas uh, and in the prior test session? And uh, if so, how does that impact uh, prediction accuracy. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm expecting the draft to to really impact this race more so, especially more so than Atlanta, where you know tire wear impacted the race much more than the draft did. Um, but especially with these air ducts filtering air out the side of the cars, uh, the lower tire wear, meaning um, you know that's not going to separate cars as much. Uh, all of that, I think, is going to play into more pack racing, more side-by-side racing, um, and which definitely, I think, would impact prediction accuracy. So uh, I think we'll see a much less predictable Las Vegas race than in the past. You know, in the past, this was a race that we could predict with about 65 70% accuracy in that range uh, for finishing position. I think it's going to be a lot lower than that. All right, what is the model's prediction accuracy for Atlanta? Yeah, so so last weekend um, at Atlanta, I, I you know I put the model on 
Rotoviz, I put the uh, the the um, the prediction model there, but it was just DraftKings points. But if you if you just take the the finishing position prediction part of that, uh, we got an R squared for the model predicted finishing position versus the actual finishing position of 0.59, which is actually funny enough higher than uh, past Atlanta races. So I thought that was kind of strange that uh, it actually made prediction actually accuracy higher. And the reason I think that happened is a the tire wear was so much more in Atlanta in past years that that was a big reason for randomness and, and B created more cautions. So uh, we saw lower tire wear and fewer cautions at Atlanta and that all increased, uh, contributed to increased accuracy. So it was 0.59 at Atlanta, which was actually surprisingly high. And again, that model was just based off of large oval data from 2011 to present, uh, you know, up until through the 2018 season, just taking all the large oval data. Um, so all the tracks, all the large ovals that fell into that category since 2011. All right. What are you expecting, uh, in terms of prediction accuracy, uh, for Las Vegas, um, in comparison to Atlanta and, uh, does it change uh, GPP strategy at all? Yeah. So I'm expecting, you know, so we got a 0.59 in Atlanta. I expect Vegas to be lower than Atlanta. I think we'll see more side-by-side racing, which could lead to more cautions. Um, and uh, just that whole randomness factor because of the draft. Uh, we didn't talk about the draft at Atlanta other than, you know, basically when a couple of those lead cars were running together, uh, kind of sucking up towards the car in front of them. The draft, you know, they, they mentioned the draft word a little bit at Atlanta. They're going to mention it a whole lot more at Vegas. So that'll create some randomness. I don't expect it to be like Daytona levels of randomness, you know, where it's R squared of 0.15 or 0.2 tops. You know, I think we'll probably see something in the 0.4 range, but that's still uh, random, that, uh, relatively random. I mean, more than half the variance is, is probably not going to be explained by uh, the factors in the models would be my best guess. So that definitely changes GPP strategy. Uh, there will be chalky plays, and I think some of those chalky plays could be interesting drivers to avoid uh, unless I think, you know, they really have a good shot at dominating the race. Uh, then um, that's a little bit different story, but I'm talking about like drivers mid pack or whatever. Um, you know, if, if let's say, I don't know, let's say Paul Menard qualifies 28th, he's going to be the chalky chalky play. You know, he's going to probably grab 40% ownership, something like that. Uh, you know, I, I don't think he needs to be 40% owned just because uh, I think we're going to see a very high variance in the mid-pack portion of the field. All right, let's talk about dominators. The dominator points were spread out at both Daytona and Atlanta with a more prevalent draft at Las Vegas. Uh, do you think we will once again see uh, dominator points spread out? Um, so funny enough, like I said, I think the draft will play a huge role. We'll have a lot of variance mid-pack, but I actually think in the front of the pack, uh, it still may be hard to pass the leader. So I still think, even though we had a lot of vari variance in in dominators, both at Atlanta and at Daytona, you know, we had uh, one, two, three, four, five, six drivers lead at least 22 laps at Atlanta, and then at Daytona, let me pull up the the results here one second as I stall. We had. No driver lead more than 49 laps at Daytona, and we had uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven drivers lead at least 11 laps. Now, remember, that was only a 200-lap race versus a 325-lap race at Atlanta. So, again, dominator points very spread out. What we'll see at 
what I expect we'll see at Las Vegas is not only will we see um, uh, fastest lap spread out, but I actually think we'll see laps led more concentrated. So uh, I, I just have a feeling it's going to be hard to pass the leader under this package. I'm not sure of it, but based off what we saw at the test session, based off what we saw in the Charlotte All-Star race, I think it'll still be pretty hard to pass the leader. Um, so I think we could see dominator points, especially the the you know the tire wear being lower. Uh, I think we could see um, maybe two or three dominators in a 267 lap race. That makes sense. But I wouldn't say we're going to see like four or five, six drivers all leading, you know, 15 plus laps or something like that. I think what we're going to see is probably two, maybe three dominators uh, leading the bulk of the race. And how are you going to evaluate which drivers might dominate? Honestly, I have no idea, but uh, I still think it's going to come from the big teams. Um, it'll probably come from, you know, a Stuart Haas racing car or a Penske car or a Gibbs car, maybe uh, maybe a Larson or, or, or somebody like that. But uh, I still think it'll come from that main bunch. But as far as picking out which of that main bunch is going to dominate, um that that's that's pretty tough. I feel actually a little more comfortable just being like, here's a, a group of drivers I think will be, you know, we better suited to uh, outperform their expectations than I feel, you know, to say like, oh, here's a driver I feel really confident about dominating. But I will say Kevin Harvick is probably the favorite to dominate, given uh, that last year he did so well under the Charlotte All-Star package. Uh, also, in the lower tire wear, large ovals, he and Martin Truex Jr. were the top two dominators last year with Truex at 25% and Harvick at 24% of the laps led at those races over the last two years. Okay, speaking of evaluation, how are you planning on evaluating driver performance this weekend, just kind of generally speaking? Yeah, so I'm going to do, at least for the model, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm just going to take all races since 2011 uh, for large ovals, the large oval category, uh, which is, uh, that is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 8 tracks, I think. And uh, so, yeah, I'm just going to um, evaluate drivers from 2011 to present on large ovals, and that'll be the model portion, but... Uh, another subset that I want to look at is just the low tire wear large ovals. That would be Kansas, Kentucky, Texas Motor Speedway, Las Vegas Motor Speedway, and Michigan International Speedway, the two-mile large oval there. Those are the lower tire wear large ovals, those five right there. And I'm just – right now I'm looking if – if you go to the Rotoviz NASCAR Splits app, which is already updated for the weekend, um, you can pop in those five tracks and set the slider to 2017 to 2019 – and then just set the number of races to like 36 to make sure you're capturing all of those races from 2017 to 2019. Uh, and then what I did is I removed DNFs. Um, and so looking at that, that gives a really nice, uh, you know, I think evaluation of driver's performance at lower tire wear tracks. So um, I'm definitely going to use the model, but I also want to subset it into lower tire wear tracks as well and just kind of figure out which drivers uh, do better at lower tire wear tracks. Salaries are out at DraftKings. So looking at those salaries in combination with driver performance at low tire wear, large ovals, uh, which drivers stand out to you before we head into qualifying? Yeah, um, the number one driver that stands out to me this weekend is a driver that uh, I was kind of lower on going into the weekend last weekend, but then ended up having a really good race in terms of going through the field and then leading some laps. And that was Ryan Blaney. 
Now, obviously, he didn't finish as well he was a, as he would have liked at Atlanta because he also had a tire issue at the end there, uh, a loose wheel issue, I think. But uh, Ryan Blaney is is absolutely standing out in the split that I just created that I talked about uh, with these five high tire or sorry lower tire wear large ovals from 2017 to 19. You have to remember with Blaney, 2017 he was racing at the Wood Brothers, which yes was a Penske affiliate, but not a Penske car uh, totally. So. Blaney in those two years at these five tracks has a driver rating of 107.6, which is fourth among all drivers. But he's priced down there uh, behind, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seventh behind uh, Harvick, Bush, Keselowski, Logano, Truex, Larson. Then comes Blaney. But the other thing is Blaney is in that tier with uh, Kyle Busch, Kyle Larson and Brad Keselowski. They all have a driver rating from 105.4 to 107.9. And Blaney is the cheapest driver in that tier. So the top tier is, is Harvick and Truex. Then there's that next tier of Bush, Blaney, Larson, and Keselowski. Then it's a bit of a drop down to the next car being Joey Logano. So uh, really like Ryan Blaney's price as well as his uh, high tire wear – or sorry, low tire wear large oval history. Another one that stands out, Kurt Busch, $8,200, which places him – I think it's like 13th on DraftKings uh, for, for pricing – yeah, 13th on pricing, but uh, he's right up there. I know, obviously, he was in the Stuart Haas cars the past couple of years, but he showed strong at Atlanta in the Ganassi car. We know Kyle Larson has gotten a lot of performance over the past couple of years out of that Ganassi car. So he's in that next tier after the Bush, Blaney, Larson, Keselowski. It's the Logano, Kurt Busch, Chase, Elliott tier. Uh, Logano, 10,700 this weekend. Elliott, 9,200, but Kurt Busch, 8,200. Just you know, $2,500 cheaper than Joey Logano, even though he's shown basically the exact same performance as Logano in every major predictive category, uh, driver rating, average running position, quality pass percent, and uh, lap led and fastest laps uh, percentage as well. Now, Kurt Busch hasn't finished quite as well as Logano, but that's, you know, less predictive. Actual finishing position is less predictive of future finishing position than something like driver rating. So um, Kurt Busch right in that tier, Way underpriced. Finally, if we want to go down the uh, the list here a little bit and find a cheaper driver that I think is way underpriced, William Byron is in the exact same tier as his as his uh, teammates there at uh, Hendrick Motorsports. Um, you know, 77.6, 75.8, and 72.8 driver ratings for Bowman, Johnson, and Byron. So Byron's the bottom three of that tier. But uh, he is also priced 6,600 versus 7,400 for Bowman and 8,100 for Jimmy Johnson. That $1,500 difference, especially between Byron and Johnson, is huge considering they had average finishes of 17.0 and 17.2 respectively, driver ratings of 75.8 and 72.8 respectively, quality pass percentage. Actually, Byron was better than Jimmy Johnson. Uh, average running position, 16.4 versus 17, basically a wash, and neither one really dominated much. So while William Byron is the uh, you know the the cheaper version of Jimmy Johnson this weekend as far as uh, what we can expect. Same team. He's got Jimmy Johnson's old crew chief uh, and, uh, you know, basically the same stats, and he's $1,500 cheaper. And uh, who are the drivers you might be looking to avoid? Um. Well, I think one driver to avoid would be Brad Keselowski, priced at 11400 A, he just won the race at Atlanta, so that probably inflates his price a little bit. Uh, but B, he's just in that second tier of drivers. So you're looking at Blaney at 9500 or Keselowski at eleven four, 
why would you ever, you know, choose Keselowski at 11-4? There's also Kyle Busch at 11-9 who might also be overpriced as well. Um, so he and Keselowski kind of have performed similarly. Uh, but but Busch is at the top part of that tier, whereas Keselowski's at the bottom part of that tier, and he's the second highest priced driver in that tier. So maybe we avoid Keselowski a little bit, especially with the bump he's probably getting from his Atlanta win. Uh, and then another driver that I think is a very, very big fade candidate uh, going into the weekend is Clint Boyer. Just not performed well at these tracks in the past two years while he's been at Stuart Haas Racing. 82.8 driver rating. That places him uh, well down there. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13th. But he is priced right behind Blaney – or sorry, right behind Elliott in ninth. So 13th best in performance, ninth highest price. And uh, – you know, he basically winds up in the we've got the top tier, we got the next tier, then we've got the Logano Bush Elliott tier. He kind of ends up in like a, a tier even below Eric Jones and Denny Hamlin, a, a further tier below that with Eric Almarola, his teammate there. Well, Almarola is priced four hundred dollars cheaper, but uh, you know, I'd probably just instead just avoid Clint Boyer completely and maybe play somebody even like Eric Jones, eighty four hundred dollars that I mentioned, who's uh, you know better performance than Clint Boyer at these tracks. And also, if we just look at Las Vegas, Eric Jones really crushes at Las Vegas. So another driver I didn't quite mention uh, in the first segment with, with you know, good expectations and, and nice salary. But Eric Jones, you can throw in that group as well. But definitely Clint Boyer, uh, Brad Keselowski are probably the drivers I'm looking at avoiding. Um, I, I'm not actually looking at avoiding Jimmy Johnson because, you know, I mentioned he's 8,100 versus Byron at 66, but he's actually priced appropriately um, 15th, I think, in driver rating and 14th in price. I mean, that's basically a wash, but but obviously the value there is William Byron. So um, definitely I like William Byron uh, as a value. So I'm not really fading Jimmy Johnson. But then finally, if we want like a, a mid-tier or lower driver that I'm fading, I would be Daniel Suarez. Uh, you know, fading going into the weekend, obviously things can change. But that would be Daniel Suarez. He's priced at 7700 uh, But he is down there in the uh, bottom of that mid-tier of drivers. So you, you got that like – you got your top tier. You've got your mid-tier drivers. you got your lower mid-tier drivers. He is in the very back of the lower mid-tier drivers in terms of performance. Uh, you know, so like down there with – Paul Menard, Ryan Newman, Austin Dillon, he's actually behind all of them and just above like what I would call the slightly better than Joe Dirt cheap tier, which is like your Chris Bushers, your Bubba Wallace, your Ty Dillons. Um, he's just barely above that tier of drivers. So Daniel Suarez priced at $7,700, way too expensive when he's, you know, performed in the past at these tracks, like a driver that probably should be priced around 64, 6,500. So um, just way overpriced. I know he's at Stuart Haas now, but past two years he was at joe gibbs racing so it's not like he has a major step up in equipment he doesn't he just hasn't performed at these high tire wear tracks all right final question uh what is the content schedule this weekend so as i mentioned the nascar splits app already updated with results from atlanta so that is all updated ready to go for the whole weekend the optimizer and the uh, SimScores apps are prepped for this weekend. Obviously, they're not updated for the weekend because we don't have weekend data that they need. Um, but they are prepped and good to go so that after we get final practice data, uh, both of those should be updated within, I would say, 30 minutes of final practice data being transferred to uh, you know, uh, fantasy NASCAR content providers. So um, usually you get practice data pretty quickly after final practice. Then I'll be able to run the model, uh, update, pop that into the optimizer and update that, 
update the sim scores. Uh, and so those are all, like I said, prepped and ready to go. We just need the practice data. Then um, I'll be writing a betting article. So we'll talk about betting Las Vegas for Action Network. And uh, I will try to find time for a Road of His live show uh, that I did over at my Twitch page last week. That was really successful. We had 200 people at one point watching the show. So uh, lots of awesome questions, really good questions from you guys. So we'll try to do that again. I'm not positive I'll be able to. Um, obviously, with the race in Vegas this weekend, uh, there will be people in town that I'm going to be hanging out with. Uh, and uh, so, for example, PJ Walsh from the Action Network, uh, another NASCAR better there. I'll be hanging out with him. Uh, but uh, I'll try to find time either Saturday evening or Sunday morning to do a road of his live show, if possible, on my Twitch page. But no guarantees on that one. All right. That is going to do it for this NASCAR edition of On the Daily. For Nick Kiffin on Twitter at Rotodoc, I'm Matt Friedman. Matt F. The Oracle, thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to On the Daily, the Road of His Daily fantasy sports podcast powered by Road of His Radio. And special thanks to Randy E. Aguabo for the introduction. Please review the podcast on iTunes under the established Road of His Radio feed. Contact us via email on the daily DFS at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at on the daily DFS. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.